Amen. Absolutely. Prepare your hearts and your minds and your cell phones. This is the Word of God. All right, so we're continuing with this, this king theme that we've dealt with the last couple weeks. And so I want to reiterate what we talked about last week. Um, last week we looked at the text from three different perspectives or three different levels. And uh, every week there is the preaching hindsight there where I'm like, I wish I should have said that and I wish I should have said that. So what I wish I should have said, I do not disagree with anything I said last week, but what I wish I should have said was that these three levels that we looked at, we should always look at when we read scripture. And so let me tell you what, what I mean. Um, in order to rightly divide and apply the word, this is the, the beginning of it all. The first thing we have to understand, the very first level when we read scripture, is what is its original context? What did its original hearers hear? What cultural ideas, what historical events would they have been familiar with? Because we are not the scripture's original audience. We are an intended audience, but we're not the original audience, so we must understand the original intention first. Then, what is happening in redemptive history? The, the, the second level, beyond what is happening in the immediate, is what is God doing in all of time and all of space? Where does this fit into God's plan of, of redemption to saving a people for himself? So you've got the immediate You've got the, the salvific on a larger scale. And then third, and only then, how does this text apply to us in our time and our day? A lot of people get themselves in trouble because they start with step number three first. The worst Bible study you will ever be in is the one where it says, open this up and now what does this mean to you? If they do that, go somewhere else. First, we understand who this is written to, why it's written, who wrote it, the time and the context and all that. Then we see it's part of God's redemptive plan, and we read it in context of that. Then we can apply it to ourselves. So that is what we will be doing this morning in this King theme. Because we talked about last week, Mark mentions uh, king, many times, he brings up every instance here where before the Jews, before Pilate, now on the cross, the reminder of him being king of the Jews, and, and in a mocking sense, he brings this up. Because Mark is reminding us he is the messianic king, he's just not the one that they were expecting. He's not the type of king that, that, that they wanted. And so we're going to look at... Um, Jesus' mock coronation by all the passers-by. Everyone in this, this story, the, the Romans, the passers-by, the, 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 the Jews, even the robbers, this becomes a mock coronation. You think you're a king? We're going to make a joke out of you because you're a joke in our eyes. So in this text, if we see our three levels here, number one, that's our first level. At very face value and historical fact, Jesus looks like a fool in front of everyone in the story. But that's not all that's going on here. In our second level, the, in God's redemptive plan, this mock coronation on the cross actually precedes his real coronation as the son of man that happens at his resurrection and ascension. And then out of that, our, our third level, what we'll finish this morning, is how this is a comfort to us. A comfort to the church in this day and age. What, does, what happened to Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago? How do I take comfort and encouragement as a saint today? And so, 
as we're working through the text, um, of all of these parallel accounts in all four Gospels, Mark is the shortest, as he usually is, kind of the, the truncated version. So what Mark pays attention to is the list of historical details. So we'll get to the, the setting first uh, in verses 21 through 29a. You'll see what I mean when we get there. This list is separated by the word and nine times in eight verses. And, and, and. Mark is just listing out these details in the setting. Our second section is going to be the, the shame and the dishonor at the scorn that comes from those who see him on the cross. So here's Mark's two emphases, the, the setting and the scorn. Uh, and and um, we will emphasize the, the second one because that's where, where Mark does. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 15, starting, or excuse me, chapter 15, starting in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your grand plan of redemption. We praise you that before the earth was founded, you knew you would create a people in your own image. You knew they would rebel against you. You knew they would sin and desire to become gods themselves. You knew they had no hope in and of themselves. You knew and you planned their only hope of redemption was sending your son. You knew and you planned your very son, one in essence to take on flesh, truly God, truly man, to walk among us. And you knew every one of us. You knew every one of our sins like you knew every hair on our head. Yet you love us. Christ died for us knowing our sin in spite of our sin, and even more so, taking on our sin. We praise you for your grand plan of redemption. We praise you for your spirit who inspired pens to write this down and preserve it so that the church might be edified and you might be glorified throughout the ages. May we continue with our brothers and sisters throughout the century in proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's pick up with the first player in this story. Simon of Cyrene, they compelled this passerby. 
So Cyrene was in North Africa. Uh, we don't know. He was coming from the country. We don't know whether he was coming from home or from work. But here you've got this, this African man seemingly out of place. And they, they compelled him. They basically grab him out of the crowd. He's probably a guy they look at, yeah, he could carry the cross. So they pull him out and compel him to carry Jesus' cross. Now this gives us a bit of an indication of Jesus' state. Because under Roman law, not only would you, uh, if, if, you were, if you were convicted and condemned to be crucified, you were expected to carry your own cross. That was part of your, your punishment. You were to bear every bit of your, of your punishment. Yet this, this man, this, this passerby, um, is, is compelled to carry it. So the, but the first thing I want you to get, do not be consumed with Jesus' weakness. It was not Jesus' weakness that brought him to the cross. It was his strength. It was not his physical strength that we are to put our trust in. It was his, his, his faith in God. It was his trust in the Father. It was his determination with that joy set before him, his strength that voluntarily put himself before the Jews and before Pilate, that took one step after another, even when his body failed him to go to the cross. Now, what's interesting here, if you've noticed in the book of Mark, if you have paid attention and you've gone back and forth between the Gospels, Mark doesn't often name names. You notice that? A lot of times when the other Gospel writers do, Mark kind of uh, speaks with anonymity. The emphasis is always Jesus. The only one who takes, you know, the only ones who take any other prominence are, are Peter or John the Baptist. But here, we get Rufus. And we shouldn't know anything about Rufus. He could have easily said, a man carried his cross. But he was coming from the country. He's Simon of, or excuse me, we have Simon, father of Rufus and Alexander, who's coming from the country. Why does Mark include those names? Now, if you remember uh, who's Mark's intended audience? Mark is writing to the church in Rome. When Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he mentions a very godly family in the church. It's Romans 16, 13. It'll be on the screen. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, there's a lot of speculation here, and I think it's strong that Mark, writing to a Roman audience, who would recognize the name Simon the Cyrene, the father of Rufus and Alexander, whose wife and son are still laboring in the church. If this is the case, imagine this. He's coming home from wherever he's coming home from, or he's, he's on the road, he carries Jesus' cross, and this so compels him. The Savior would die. That there is a generational blessing. His wife and his son are beloved in the church. I think this is the reason why those, those names are, are here. And so in this way, he is the first one to take up the cross and follow Christ. He is the first one to know the weight that suffering comes before glory. He feels the very weight of the cross of Jesus Christ on him. And if you are to follow him in discipleship, you must feel that weight too. Because if you think Jesus' cross was light on your behalf, you don't know the gospel and you don't know your own sin. When you think about what Jesus brought to the cross on your behalf, if indeed he did, you would buckle under the weight of your own sin. 
So when Jesus said, it is not a light thing that you take up your cross and follow me, because he does not guarantee that this life will be light. What he does guarantee is that his burden will be light. There will be the weight of the world and your own sin on your shoulders. However, if you know that Christ has gone before you, you can run and skip and jump knowing that he went before you, he paid the price, and it is in his strength that you endure. And so Simon the Cyrene gives us a, a small picture of this. And this really is the theme of our study in First Peter, that suffering comes before glory. Peter is telling the church, stand firm in your salvation. Stand firm in the cross of Jesus Christ because trials are coming. If you're enduring them, them now, it is only because of who you are in the Father, only because of what Christ has done, only because the Spirit seals you and comforts you along the way that you can endure. And, and with that, you will endure. And so praise the Lord for that in this beautiful picture of discipleship. So moving on, verse 22. We're just going to run through these, these lists of things. I'm not going to land more at the end. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Now, Golgotha is, is the Aramaic word, which means place of the skull. We're familiar with, with Calvary, which is based on the Latin word. And so the Latin word for is Calvary, um, or the, the English transliteration is Calvary, for scalp, scalp, or bald head. So, just so you know, this is a gospel haircut. <laughs> Gentlemen, amen. amen. Amen, yeah. All the, all, all the bald guys, we can stand tall. This is the, the head of Calvary. We are proclaiming Jesus' death and, uh, on the cross and resurrection until he returns, and I'm sticking with it. So, gentlemen, we are in good company. So, <laughs> I just had to say that. So, why Golgotha? Why the place of the skull? If they hated him, why didn't they kill him on the spot? One, they, they wanted to continue with the, 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 the semblance of justice, that we're going through the proper channels. One, it was, and, excuse me, two, in addition, it was, it was taboo for Romans to kill people inside the city. Um, this is kind of a commonly accepted practice. And third, it was unlawful for the Jews to kill someone inside the city. So they're going through all the, the, the normal processes, and the, the blood would be shed outside of the city gates on this, this hill where they would often crucify people. Um, next detail. So that's where it goes on. There's something else that's kind of interesting here. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Um, so myrrh was a, was a primitive narcotic. Uh, it was to deaden the pain. Um, it, was, it was very common for those who are, are suffering. And I found an interesting passage that there's actually a biblical principle for this. If uh, you can turn quickly, go to Proverbs 31. And uh, no, this is not the godly woman's right before that, the prophecy of uh, Lemuel. But look at the, the, the command here, this, this truism in the Proverbs, uh, 31 verses 14 through 17, or excuse me, 4 through 7. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to drink strong drink, lest they drink and forget what, they had be, what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. 
There's almost a however here. However, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. You know what's interesting is that those who handed him this mixed cocktail, they thought he was the latter, not the former. They thought he was to be pitied, the, 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 the suffering one. Yet indeed, he is a king. This is good counsel. Kings, those who make decisions, don't be in a practice of drinking while you make decisions. It should go without saying. But those who are suffering a, a little, as, as, um, as Paul tells Timothy, a, a little wine for your stomach is a good thing. And so they thought he was the latter, the suffering one. They didn't realize that he was a king, and it was not right for a king before going to the most important thing he would do in his ministry to be under the influence of something else. And in addition to that, he must drink the entire cup down to the dregs. He must drink the cup that he must take. Straight up, no chaser. Everything that he would have under no influence. His, his pain was not to be lessened. The, the, the pain of God's wrath or his human pain was not to be lessened. He was to take it as it was intended, the full weight. And so in this, he fulfills the first of two messianic psalms we're going to look at. Psalm 69, I want you to turn there. If you're new to flipping around in your Bible, just open your Bible to the middle. It will fall in the psalms and find Psalm 69. I want you to remember this psalm because this is very much a messianic psalm. Uh, it is a psalm of David. It's, again, this is how we read scripture. First level, this is a psalm of David written in David's life in David's tribulation. Second level, we begin to see God's redemptive plan through the king of Israel. Third level, or, or in, in, into Christ. And then in our, in our third level, uh, we can apply this in that Christ in his humanity, understands what it means to go through suffering and to go through difficulty. I want to just breeze through this, but give you a few things. Look at this, this psalm. Now, David is going through a difficult time, but this is speaking about Christ as well. Verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. So he is treated like a common criminal. But flip forward to verse 16. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. And now where it happens in our particular text, verse 19. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart. This is his own people. He's weeped over Jerusalem. So that I am in despair. I look for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. This is the state of Jesus speaking through David 1,500 years earlier. Next verse. And they crucified him. Simple statement. There's so much within that, and we won't go into all that. 
But I want you to read from a first century writer, Quintilian. It'll be up on the screen. So he was a writer and a poet. Someone who was alive during the time of all the apostles and of Paul, who's a Roman citizen, when he observed crucifixion, here's what he said. Whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. This is why we have so many passers-by come up in our text. This was by intention. The, Roman wanted, the Romans wanted to instill fear in everyone who would see it. They wanted to drive home a message. You do not go against Rome. And we're going to put you on the side of I-4. I-4. And, um, and so everyone can see you. If you weren't there during corporate prayer, join us next week. Um, and so everyone can see you. And everyone will know that you are a criminal shamed by Rome. And so I was thinking about this. What a far cry this is from the cross today being a fashion statement worn by pagans and, and um, by designers built into design. Like this is unheard of to the early church. Or even some people, I see some people treat it kind of like our lucky rabbit's foot, like holding and kissing their, their, their cross. The early church, to them, this was a sign of death. That we, we hold this proudly, but if we hold this publicly, we may be killed. For many of our brothers and sisters around the country, specifically, excuse me, around the world, specifically in Muslim countries, where it is illegal to be a Christian, they will have little hidden crosses so that they can show themselves to one another to confirm that they are Christ that they are Christ. If they are found with it, they will be tried and often killed. I know, or I know believers in, in Egypt who have very small um, cross tattoos on the inside of, of their wrists so that when they, that they shake the hand of another believer, they will, they will see the cross. And this is a sign of, of honor, but it is not something to be taken lightly. And we have taken it so lightly. We must understand the cross rightly. And we also must not be like the Romans, the, the, the modern Romans. I hate, and you should too, the crucifix. So the idea that a suffering Christ is still on the cross is blasphemous. This is how the Roman Catholic Church uses it to manipulate people and to pull on on heartstrings and emotions that Jesus suffered. And they only think about Jesus suffering and they appeal to Jesus suffering because he is weak in their eyes because you need to complete the work that Jesus didn't. Our cross is empty, praise the Lord. Because our Savior is risen. And we as Christians should not think lightly about the cross. It is a source of honor and privilege that our Savior went there for us. And so do not think lightly about the cross and do not let the, 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 the popular culture water down the symbol of our salvation. All right, let's move on. I didn't intend to go all there, but I did. Um, the rest of the sentence. And, next one, they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each one should take. Casting lots, gambling. This is a game to them. This is just another day at work. They are, they are casting lots. They are rolling dice to see who can get Jesus' clothes. Think about this. We killed the Christ, the Son of God, and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. That's, a, that's, that's essentially what's happening here. But isn't that just like the world? 
How fitting that the world is gambling, rolling dice in the face of the cross. That they are playing games on the way to hell. This is exactly what they're doing. This is just another day. No different than today. The world hears the message of the cross and those who are perishing, it is foolishness. They play games and they, and they go about their, their lives as if Jesus on the cross has no bearing on them whatsoever. And in this life, for them it doesn't. Because it means nothing to them. But it will when they see him again. And so I want to just challenge us this morning. Is the cross a light thing to us? I think about how many people come to church, see Christ proclaimed as crucified, and walk away with a little trinket. All I need is a little piece of Jesus. I can get a, gar- a piece of his clothes, a little pat on the back, a little Christian saying, a Christian bracelet, a Christian bumper sticker, and that's all I need. How many people have I met who do that, who go into church week after week after week after week and get nothing out of it? Walk away with a little token. You can't take a piece of Christ. You have all of Christ or you have none of Christ. And these soldiers should convict us because is that us? When we hear that Jesus died because of sin, that Jesus is on the cross, and then it is life or death on that cross, are we convicted at all? Are we moved at all? Do we cry out in repentance? Do we cry out in gratefulness? Or do we shrug our shoulders and go on with our day? When they divided up his garments, this was not censored. He was stripped naked, completing the shame. But he was stripped naked so that we would be clothed in righteousness. He was stripped naked that we would not be naked and ashamed on the day of judgment. He was stripped naked that we would receive royal garments, sparkling white. Do not pity Jesus. Praise his name for what he did for you. And if he didn't, cry out in repentance. We'll get into more of that later. Verse 25. And it was the third hour and they crucified him. So um, according to Jewish timekeeping, again, remember the first hour is 6 a.m., third hour is 9 a.m. So this is 9 a.m. in the morning. Basically, there is a, there is a, uh, a, a three-hour stretch from 9 to 12 from the third hour to the sixth hour or midday. He's suffering on the cross for three hours. This is the, 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 the time frame of what's going on. He breathes his last at the, sixth hour, at the sixth hour in Jewish estimation. And verse 26, in the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. This is also a requirement in, in Roman uh, crucifixion, that the, the, the charge of the guilty must be placed above his head. So notice, there is no official crime. This goes down in the Roman record books. What was he guilty of? He is the king of the Jews. Pilate said, I wrote what I wrote. Not just claiming to be the king of the Jews, but he died as the king of the Jews. Even the Romans are proclaiming who he really is. They have nothing else to say about him. Verse 27. 
And with him they crucified two robbers, one in his right hand, one in his left. Does this bring to mind anything we read just a few chapters ago? Remember when two of his closest disciples, James and John, said, Teacher, give us whatever we ask. Grant that one of us sit on your right and your left hand in glory. But they didn't realize that the cross must come before the crown. That there is no glory without suffering. That no one could sit on his right or his, or his left hand until there was a murderer and a robber on his right and left hand. He, must, he had to go to the cross first before there could be glory. And so moving on, those of you who are astute, you realize, I may have not been great at math, but uh, 29 does not come after 27. Anyone else notice that? So this is a uh, later edition. So it is, it is true, even if it's not original to the text. Most of your Bibles will have a, a footnote at the bottom uh, saying, thus it was fulfilled, he was numbered amongst the, the, the transgressors. So even though that may not be original to the, the text, it is absolutely true. We spent a lot of time in Isaiah 53. Look at Isaiah 53, 12. It'll be on the screen quickly. So summing all this up in, you know, from Isaiah, the end of 52 and 53, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. His clothes are divided, but now he's given an inheritance, a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So he was numbered with sinners to die for sinners and now makes intercession for sinners. This is the, is the, the complete fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Let's move on. The last of the list of details, uh, beginning with Anne, verse 29, 29a, the first portion of this verse. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying. Before we get to the saying, think about the uh, picture here. The mocking goes from the Jews to the Gentiles, to Rome and, and the Roman citizens. And now just the average person who's walking by the commoners who derided him. In the Greek, this is literally they blasphemed him. They gave divine insults as they're spitting and mocking and jeering at him. They are cursing God in his name, mocking him in the highest degree. And they are jeering at their only hope. This is the deceitfulness of sin. Sin thinks it's free. They are standing down there, look at us. We can walk around as we please. This is what the world does. I can do whatever I want. You are pinned to that tree. What a lie that is. It is their freedom that condemns them. And their only hope is pinned to that tree and they mock it. So don't forget when you see the world coming and going to and fro, it seems like they are free and doing whatever they want. But they are far more in captive. Slaves to their own sin. Jesus was there willingly, and their only hope they mocked. Because he seems powerless to them. So all this fulfills our second psalm, Psalm 22. This psalm, from beginning to the end, the one that Jesus quotes from the cross, will be seen more next week, has a lot of details that are fulfilled. Again, level one, this is David going through some very difficult times. But also we see it confirmed in Christ. Psalm 22, picking up in verse 8. Excuse me, verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, 
scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All those who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. Can't be good, whatever that is. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. That will come up in in a moment. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. There's a lot more here, but I want to jump into verse 16. For dogs encompass me. The company of evildoers surrounds me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, and they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. This is not the word, these are not the words of Jesus originally. These are words of David. His, the, the first head of the house of Judah. Again, 1,500 years before. But the beauty of this psalm is that there is deliverance from the Lord, and he ends with the praise of the Lord in the great congregation. So remember these two psalms, Psalm 69, Psalm 22, seeing them fulfilled on the cross. All right, so now let's get into these specific accusations, the, the insults, the scorn. Number one, the second half of verse 29. Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down, for the cro- come down from the cross. Let's break this down. The claim about the temple was especially offensive to them. Well, we know this is the center of Jewish life, but think about it. Who were the false witnesses? The false witnesses that they conjure up It was about the temple. And they even disagreed with one another, but they knew that was so offensive, that that was so central to everything that the Jews believed, that this should surely condemn him if Jesus speaks against the temple, if he declares that he's going to destroy the temple. But they couldn't see that he was referring to the more important temple. They couldn't see that he was referring to the temple of his own body. And that the temple of his own body would make that grand temple built with Herod's hands, as opposed to the one built with God's hands, it would make that one irrelevant. That was the temple that he was referring to, and they twisted his words and took it out of context. They were focused on the temple as proud Jews, but for the wrong reason. Now remember what the temple signified. The temple signified the very presence of God. The temple signified sacrifices so that you might be made right with God. It signified atonement so you might be covered with the blood of of an offering so that God will not kill you. The temple represented God dwelling with man so that man would live. They were staring at him and missed it because they did not have eyes to see. They were upset about him defaming their temple. But the true temple, Emmanuel, God with us, was right in front of him. Their only hope for atonement. Because the sacrifices of the bulls and the goats that they would kill again and again and again could never cover. But the perfect price, his blood, the propitiation, the last sacrifice that he would give, would cover all the sins they had ever committed, past, present, and future. And they rejected it. They're condemning themselves by condemning the true temple of God standing right in front of them. But they don't just stop there. Save yourself and come down from the cross. And then again, the chief priests are saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. You know what's interesting? They actually admit that he saved. So this, in in the Greek, the word is um, sozo is, is save or heal. So they have that in mind, but they're admitting he's a savior. 
He saved others. He actually did things that, that made a change in others. He saved them, but he cannot save himself. Even in their admittance that he can save, they still hate him. Come down from the cross. The chief priests and the scribes, verse 31, they mock him to one another, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross. This is full of sarcasm, full of hatred. They know. It's, they're not claiming ignorance here. We know you claim to be the Christ. We know many people think you are the Christ. We know you're being charged as the king of the Jews. Look at you. Look what type of king you are. Come down now. They're mocking him to his face. Come down now. But thank God he didn't. Thank God he didn't come down. Thank God he doesn't listen to short-sighted sinners like us. Thank God that Jesus finished what he was sent to do. Thank God that he stayed on the cross and took the full weight of sin, took the full weight of the wrath of God. Praise God he took the full punishment. Nothing to numb the pain, nothing to lessen the degree. Otherwise, we would have no hope. He remained there until it was finished. But they didn't understand that. They said, come down. What did they say? Come down now. Instant gratification is not new. Even then, they wanted Jesus to obey them how they said, when they said. They thought God should do what they want. Mankind has not changed. There's nothing new under the sun. We want God the genie. God, jump. Show yourself to me right now. Do what I think you should do. And do it now. Okay, God, you don't do what I think you should do right now, then I can't believe in a God who won't jump through my hoops. Well, if a God would jump through your hoops, I don't want to believe in him. He doesn't listen to them. He's not under their commands. But look at their motivation. They try to sound righteous. Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They don't understand faith. If you've got to see to believe, it's not faith. We know this. But this is the Jews. They seek signs. Let us see and believe. You must first have eyes to see. And then it's granted through faith. There is no faith. There is no real belief. See, let us see and believe. Really? If Jesus were to come down right now, would you still believe? No. Many of you think, well, if Jesus just shows up to me right now, if he writes something in the sky, if I get a verbal word from God, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Let me tell you how I know that. Jesus tells us that. He tells this story that's a great illustration. Turn to Luke chapter 16. This is very telling of the human condition, but especially the Jews. I want to read the whole thing because Jesus is a great storyteller and I don't want to cut him off. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. Anyone who says Jesus didn't talk about hell has never read their Bible. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime, uh, you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. It has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And no one, none may cross from here to us. Notice in that massive chasm, the only thing that makes us able to cross is the cross. And he says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. This is the indictment to the Jews. We've just read the Psalms. We've read Isaiah. We've gone through many of these prophecies. You've got Moses and the prophets. You don't need Abraham to speak to you. You've got the very word of God. You've got the inspired word of God's spirit and you don't listen. But how does the rich man respond? No. It's always a good response when someone says you read the scriptures. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Jesus, come down from that cross and we will believe in you. When he rose again, did they believe? He said to them, verse 31, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Remember this. Whenever you are tempted to put some kind of creative argument together, whenever you are tempted to try to convince someone into heaven, if they don't believe the scriptures, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, someone could come back from the dead and they wouldn't believe. Because he did, and they didn't. Jesus illustrates this perfectly for us. Keep your finger in Luke. We're going to come back there in just a moment. So you may ask, with all of this criticism, why why all the rage? Why are they so angry? Because if none of it's true, why would you care? Why don't you just walk on? Like, why must they mock and jeer at him? I want to go back to our corporate reading. If you can keep one finger in Luke, um, put one finger in 1 Corinthians, or it'll be on the screen. 1 Corinthians, picking up in verse 18. Why mock? Why is this so incredulous to them? 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly. Folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is what ears to hear means. I can say the words, Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And those who know what that means rejoice. And those who don't, check out. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. In the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? It's not just Paul's age. It is our age too. There are so many people who think they've, they have graduated beyond Jesus. They have graduated beyond religion. This is just foolishness. So many people in our day, even Christians, claiming all kinds of other wisdom. But has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, come down from there. The Greeks seek wisdom, give us the understanding. But we, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Jesus, or excuse me, um, Jesse was right earlier when he said this is not a presentation, this is a proclamation. We preach Christ and him crucified. Amen. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That is why we preach Christ. That is why we preach the cross every week. The power of God and the wisdom of God. There is no other wisdom. There is no other power. If the preaching of the word, if Christ crucified will not turn your heart and turn your mind, nothing will. And so, back in our text, Mark ends on a very somber note. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. But we won't. Because Luke doesn't. If you have your finger still in Luke, look at Luke chapter 23. I love this, and I, I have to bring this in. This is one of the most beautiful encouragements in the Gospels. Luke 23, picking up in verse 39. So, uh, just as a side note, many people have tried to say, look, the Gospels uh, contradict themselves. The two robbers revile Jesus in Mark, yet one of them turns in, in Luke. See, it's a contradiction. He's up there for three hours. It's pretty easy to mock him and, and revile him for an hour or two hours and 45 minutes. But there is something that is worked in him. The Spirit begins to work at some point as he is hanging next to Jesus. One of the criminals, verse 39, who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. At some point, the Spirit gives him those ears to hear, the, the eyes to see. At some point, he realizes, I know I'm supposed to be here. But I don't see anything in this man. He's supposed to be here. And then he says beautiful words. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. That is such a beautiful gospel picture. I deserve to die, but you don't. Remember me. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, this is too good not to use. I will give full credit where credit is due. Uh, Alexander Begg's handling of this is brilliant. So uh, in, in a sermon, he talks about this. So when this guy dies next to Jesus, the, the thief on the side of the cross, and he shows up 
in heaven, and the angel's kind of checking the list and says, uh, what are you doing here? I don't know. Uh, how did you get here? Uh, I don't know. Uh, why are you here? I, I don't know. So then the angel begins to give him his theological entrance exam. For RBC students, there is no theological entrance exam to heaven, just so you know. So, are you here because of your view on justification by faith alone? I don't know what that is. Are you here because you have an orthodox view of inerrancy? Uh, what? Are you here because, because all of your systematic theology is in line? I don't know what you mean. Why are you here? Because the guy in the middle cross said I could come. I love that. That simple answer of, I don't know why I even deserve to be here. Because I don't. I don't understand anything. But I saw that guy. He was innocent. I'm guilty. And he said I could come. Praise the Lord that the guy in the middle cross said, you can come. Amen? Amen. So I want to begin to land the plane here and take encouragement in this. I want us to take solace in this. Like the thief on the cross, there is no sin too great. You are never too far gone. As long as there is air in your lungs, you can say, Jesus, remember me. Remember me in your kingdom. Don't, we, don't let us ever forget that we are as helpless and as guilty as those criminals on either side of him who deserve to be there. How amazing is it that we get to cry out to Jesus and can have assurance because of the cross. Amen. And it's because of his work, of his final sacrifice, that we are even invited. And I want to encourage you this morning. If your faith is in Christ, your hope should be in him. If your faith is in Christ, you have died with him. You have been crucified with him that you may live with him. So I want to remind you, when you are burdened with the guilt of, of your own sin, your own shame, look at the cross. When you fall again and again, look at the cross. When you feel hopeless and worthless, look at the cross. When you wonder if you are loved at all, look at the cross. When you wonder if you think your own goodness could be enough to stand before God, it isn't, look at the cross. If you ever become arrogant, and think that you are good enough or have done enough, look at the cross. If you are ever not grateful, if you are ever discontent, look at the cross. Amen? Amen. And if we remember what Christ has done for us, how can we not be humbled? How can we not praise him? If we remember that we are just like that thief. So here's what I want to close in the book of Revelation. As you should, it's where the book closes. Um, so let's end where we began. I want to tie up this, this king theme all the way at the end of our Bible. So Revelation is full of this royal imagery. Uh, the struggle between the king of heaven and the king of earth. And spoiler alert, the king of heaven wins. The, the royal language is all throughout. The, the churches are promised crowns in chapters 2 and 3. And in chapter 12, the woman who goes into the wilderness, she is the church. She wears a crown. Uh, and in... And in um, Whereas, oh, the, the one who like the, the son of man in chapter 14, uh, the one coming on the clouds, he wears the crowns, all this royal language. We can't even talk about, about the word throne. 37 times thrones are spoken of. But we want to look at a couple instances. I want you to see this beautiful image in Revelation 4. So all this mocking and jeering and criticizing the king of the Jews on the cross, 
I want you to see the picture. I want you to see what John saw. I want you to see who our king is. Don't have the image of our king on the cross suffering. Have this image of our king. Chapter 4 of Revelation, verse 2. At once I was in the spirit and beheld a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, whatever it is, it must be beautiful. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And the throne, or excuse me, around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the 24 thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each of the thrones, are four living, and each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind them. The first living creature like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Amen? Amen. When you read this, Don't waste your time trying to figure out what creature this is or what exactly that is. Look to the throne. Don't look to the ones who are worshiping. Worship with them. The point is not what this creature signifies or what it doesn't. The point is that they are amazing, but the one they worship is even more amazing. Keep reading. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever, and they cast their crowns before the throne. This is what true royalty is. He gives his own crowns and we give them right back. Saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and created. Remember the the, the throne in Revelation. Because those who mocked him, those who jeered him, they will stand before the throne and they will be judged by their deeds. And they will not be vindicated but for us. If you are in Christ, this throne, this one right here, is a throne of grace. This one right here is an approachable throne, even though it is awe-inspiring. It is approachable. And on the consummation, on the last day, when all things are made new, the life will flow out of this very throne. But until then, what does worship sound like? Jonathan, you guys can come up as I read this. Turn over one more chapter. I want us to respond in song directly from this. Chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. And uh, we don't often do this, but I want you to stand. So on the final day, the next time we see the throne, it will be when he is making all things new. We go before the throne every day, but what do we do until then? Let us join with the angels in heaven. Let us share in the worship that has gone on throughout the ages. Listen to this. This is what the worship of God sounds like right now. This is what is going on right now. This is our king right now. Chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked. 
And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering the myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And all God's people said, 